unlike a typical Sunday where we have a, a passage of scripture that we kind of spend time looking at and unearthing what it reveals to us about who God is, his character, and his desire for our lives. Today we're going to be talking about one of the major reasons why people leave the church or leave the faith altogether, and specifically how we can come alongside people positively within our circles of influence that would admit that they are disconnected from the people of God or faith in God with the scripture as our guide. And if you don't know anyone who has ever left the church or faith, that's you. If you don't care about people in your spheres of influence that might be disconnected from God, people, or faith in all together, and I don't mean that in like a negative way, but like there's, I, I mean that, I don't know, maybe there's another way to say that. Like it, if it doesn't like, beat in your heart every morning, like, hey, you know, hey, maybe the people far from God um, should be given a chance to choose God. If that doesn't resonate with you, or, you know, if not on a daily basis, or a weekly basis, or a monthly basis, or at least a few times in your life basis, and you call yourself a follower of Jesus, then um, I'll just warn you right now, these next 31 minutes won't apply to you, okay? Totally get that. Totally get that. Just feel free to grab some coffee. Maybe grab the rest of the donuts or help out in the kids' ministry. But, but, and there's a big but, if you're like me and you're honest with yourself, you would recognize that there are people that you interact with every single day in your everyday rhythms of life who have said to you or have said aloud in passing this. Yeah, I used to go to church, but I don't, I don't go anymore. Or they've said something to the effect of, you know, <laughs> when I was younger, I, I used to be a Christian. Or, yeah, you know what? I used to be a Christian, but, eh, you know, not so much anymore. I, I kind of believe in God, but I don't know, like, if I really believe in the Jesus stuff. I don't know about you, but I would suppose that there are people within your circles of influence who would fit that category. And if this is true for you, what I hope I have to say today helps you. What I hope I have to say today equips you in ways that maybe allows you to think about how you approach the regular rhythms of your life and maybe encourage you to repurpose those rhythms to come alongside God as he is accomplishing his mission in the world, which God is, by the way, accomplishing his mission in the world. He doesn't need us. But the joy that could be found in coming alongside of what God is doing of seeing people lean into an engaged and submitted faith in Jesus as master and savior in the world, maybe, just maybe, what I have to say today would help you help others find and follow Jesus. That's the hope. That's the hope. Because when we talk about our friends who've left the faith, who've left the church, I don't know about you, but when I think about, I think about names, I think about faces, I even think about relationships I've had with people 
whose decisions to walk away from faith or from the church in general has not only caused my heart to become saddened by the fact that they have drifted away from fellowship with the church and fellowship with God, but selfishly, maybe, I don't know if this is the right thing or not, but I'm just, I'm just going to say it, like, selfishly, it hurts my heart because those kind of decisions sometimes breaks relationships that were once so dear. Relationships that was centered on Jesus Christ and his ethics of loving others, of, you know, praying for our enemies, blessing those that curse us, and leaning into Jesus Christ as our hope who is faithful when life is tough and giving praise to God when things are great. And, and, and that's the thing that hurts my heart the most. And, and the thing is, not all people who leave the church or faith do so because they're mad or hurt by the church, right? An article by Lifeway Research uh, lists some of the more popular reasons why people leave the church or leave the faith together. And here's just a couple of them. One of them is this. Some people leave the church or leave the faith because they simply get out of habit. They get out of the habit. I don't know about you, but for almost two decades of my life, I have built the practice of practicing the piano. I don't know if there's something in your life that you had a habit of doing. Some of you, it might have been an instrument. Some of you, it might have been a sport. For some of you, it might have been, I don't know, uh, uh, some type of skill-based task. But for two decades of I, for, for over two decades of my life, I dedicated my life to practicing the piano. Since I was five years old, up through college and all that I, I practiced every day, every week. But I'm not sure when it stopped. And I'm not even sure that I chose it. In fact, nothing major happened. I didn't fall out of love with playing the piano. In fact, I still love the piano. For every once in a while, I'll recognize that I own one. <laughs> and I'm like, all of a sudden I'm playing the piano. And if someone isn't like, be quiet, I'm trying to study or something. You know? <laughs> um, I'll go down there and I'm like, oh, that's right. I love playing the piano. But somewhere along the line, at some point, that which was a habit for me became secondary to new habits that I was building my life upon. And in the same way, many people just stop patterning their lives after the way of Jesus. They don't mean to. They don't like, oh, I'm mad at God. and uh, They just... Start pattering their lot, pattering, pattering, that's not even a word, patterning their, is that a word? They start patterning, giving patterns. I look over here to my, okay, you're, you're getting your masters, you should know. Okay, patterning their lives after other things. And what happens is they just don't return to living and engaged life as part of a local church, and they don't return in living an engaged life in relationship with Christ. Instead, they reduce their interpretation of the Christian life as something that is primarily about them and God at at best, and ignore all the commands of the scriptures and patterns of the New Testament church that teaches a life submitted to Jesus is a life committed to living a life on mission, and life on life with others who also follow Jesus in a local setting. 
And then there are others who wake up one day who just realize that they no longer live with a daily sense of need for God. And it wasn't that they meant to or that they found God invaluable or they found the teachings of the scripture invaluable or the person of Jesus to be someone that they found invaluable. They just woke up one day and they realized that they didn't really have a need for God. And if they were honest with themselves, they would admit that the pursuit of happiness model that the world offers has become more of an adequate alternative to finding happiness in this world. And they're okay with that, even if it doesn't give answers, even if it doesn't give answers for how to live life with joy for all of eternity. The life they've chosen to live is giving them happiness now. And so why why mess that up? Some people leave the church or faith because they got out of the habit. It's, it's what happens. It's, not a, it's nothing personal. They just got out of the habit. But others leave the faith or church because they feel that their needs were not met. Needs were not met. Now, this isn't just about consumer Christianity. I think in the years past we've showed this uh, Me Church video. I don't know if you saw it. You know, like guys like, you know, if I'm going to go to church, I want tickets to the big, you know, Super Bowl. And they're like, oh, yeah, we, right. Well, if we go to church, uh, you know, uh, you know, we want it to start when we get there, uh, all this kind of stuff. I probably should have showed the video. But there is that component that people leave the church when they don't feel that their needs are met. There is a consumer Christianity component, and it includes people who view the local church and faith like some spiritual vending machine that exists to give us what we feel we need, right? Because, I mean, let's be honest, very few of us go to a vending machine to get the food we actually need, <laughs> right? I mean, like, think about the food in a vending machine. It's not the food you really need. It's just kind of like the food you, that looks really good. I want that. It's the one food I feel, I feel like I need that. And like a vending machine that doesn't carry your favorite snacks or brands of snacks. You ever come into a, 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 a vending machine and you're like, oh, I really hope they have, I don't know, Takis. Oh, what's, your, what's your thing? I, I really hope they have Cool Ranch Doritos. And then you walk up and what do they have? They have the off-brand. Like, and you're like, oh, what is this? Or they don't even have any chips at all. Like all they have is just candy. I need chips. And just like walking up to a vending machine doesn't carry your brand or snacks, what do you do? You move on. And so people move on to the next thing that satisfies their heart's desires. And so they do that with churches. They do that with God. They do that with faith. When it no longer fits their fancy, they just move on. Because their needs, at least what they feel their needs are, weren't met. Now, that is harsh because there are people who also have what I, I'll say, legitimate needs that they feel that the church or faith didn't meet them, at least in their expectation. Because this isn't about people who leave the church or faith because of shallow approaches of faith. There are people whose needs were not met that includes people who, because of their current realities of life, they experience some deep, emotional need 
and who for one reason or another do not feel like the church or faith could meet them where they were at. What do I mean by that? Well, it's the kind of it's the kind of need that comes from suffering that Jesus talked about when he said this to his disciples in John 16:33. He said, "You will have suffering in this world or in the King James as I have memorized it and so love in this world you will have trouble. The kind of suffering or trouble that Jesus was talking about wasn't, you know, my car won't start kind of suffering, even though that is kind of frustrating. If you're trying to get to work, it's not starting. The kind of suffering that Jesus was talking about wasn't the, I'm late on my bills because I spent too much Dairy Queen this month or whatever. You know, it isn't the, you know, oh, that person at work said something bad about me and I'm ticked off. It's not that kind of suffering. The kind of suffering that Jesus was talking about was the kind of suffering that that causes children to lose their parents before they should. It's, it's the kind of suffering that causes spouses to become widows. It's the kind of suffering that doesn't allow you to summarize your faith like we did last week on a bumper sticker. No Jesus. No peace. No Jesus. No peace. Right? It's also the kind of suffering that many times opens a window to doubt and can cause you to question everything you believe in. And for some people, their suffering also allows an opportunity to feel disappointed about how the church shows up, especially in their moment of need. Maybe you've heard this. I needed support, and no one from my church showed up. My family needed counseling, and the pastor wasn't available. I've heard that before. My kids are struggling with friendships. And the church wasn't helping with that. I should be able to find my friends there. Or I was looking for friendships. Friendships maybe on my terms, but friendships nonetheless. And the church, church didn't help me with my desire to not feel so alone. And then there are those who are going through suffering that gives them the temptation to believe that God is uncaring, unloving, or unwilling to help. Or at least that he's non-existent. And so the question is, what do you say to those whose personal pain due to suffering has caused them to leave the church or faith? This is what we're trying to wrestle with today. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. I don't know if this is something that has ever kept you up at night. I'll be honest with you, it, it, it weighs on my heart, especially as I look at our current culture and I look at the reality of people all around are disconnecting, not just from the local church and becoming ex-evangelicals, but in their pursuit of finding truth and deconstructing faith, they actually leave faith. And I don't know if you see that as a problem. I think if you have 
an itty bit of ounce of Jesus in your life. Just a little. That should break your heart. Because I tell you this. It broke God's heart enough to send his only son. So that whoever believes in him would not perish. But have everlasting life. So. In the next 16 minutes, this is the question I want to wrestle with. If you want to come along with me to wrestle this question. Are you with me? Okay. So the best answer on how I know we can begin to have a perspective of how, perspective on how we come alongside those who, whose personal pain due to suffering has caused them to leave the church of the faith. The best illustration of this is, is actually from a story about a man named Job. Does anyone know who Job is? Everyone who knows who Job is, right? We got people who grew up in church here. If you don't know who Job is, just want to go back on it. His, his biography is found in the first half of what we call the Bible, the Old Testament. Now, Job, Job was a stud, okay? He was the man. He, he had power, he had fame, he had money, he had success, he had he did have a nagging wife, but, you know, I mean, that's, you know, whatever. He had all the other stuff. It was great. I mean, he was like the, uh, I don't know, maybe the John D. Rockefeller of the Old Testament. He, he was the guy. And although Job loved God, in a very short period, what happened? At least from his perspective, he was doing fine, and all of a sudden, he lost everything. Everything important to him, his wealth, his kids, his health, and he did get to keep his wife. But everything else, he lost. And that's a, it's a real funny part of the story, if you've never read the story. Like, uh, it's like, it's a cruel joke that God, well, Satan plays on him. He takes everything away, but then leaves the nagging wife, and it's just, it's fun. And then he's got these friends. <laughs> they're not really friends. If you ever have friends like Job, you should just get rid of them. So, they're not good friends. But you gotta take a look at the story. I don't wanna, we don't have time to go into the whole story, but, what we read, when you read the story of Job, while his initial response to his sufferings was admirable, you'll look in chapters 1 and 2, and he kind of says this, uh, you know, to kind of sum it up, like everything goes away, and he, he basically kind of says this prayer, he goes, you know, uh, um, you know, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord, right? It's kind of, kind of his thing. But then after two chapters of this stuff getting taken away, it finally... Like, everybody has a breaking point, right? I mean, everybody, even the most patient a person has a breaking point. And Job gets to his breaking point. And he, like many of us in the face of suffering, he gets angry. He gets confused. And then he has questions. And here's what he says to God in chapter 10. He goes, I am disgusted with my life. I will give vent to my complaint and speak in the bitterness of my soul. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been, have you ever been that low that you would tell God, I'm about to say something. And so you brace yourself. Now it's funny because later in Job, God says to Job, I'm about to tell you something, but brace yourself like a man. (laughs) God gives it right back to him. But that's, that's later in the story. But here Job is going, I will say to God, do not declare me guilty. Let me know why you prosecute me. He, he thought he was getting all this bad stuff because something was, something he'd done wrong. And he's like, God, just, just tell me what I've done wrong. And then he goes, is it good for you to oppress, to reject the work of your hands and favor the plans of the wicked? 
God, if I've done anything wrong, let me know. But otherwise, like, why are you treating me so bad? Why is my life so hard? And the wicked, they're getting off scot-free. Have you ever felt like that? Have your emotions ever been that raw? Because I, I know this, when we experience suffering, we often lose ourselves, don't we? we <laughs> like when, when things get bad, you just go to a place that you not only don't ever usually go to, but it's a place you don't like to go. And, and as much as you try to make sense of life, you'll write down like, what's go A equals B equals elephant like you look at the the things in your life and you're like i don't know how i got here i don't know how to get out of here nothing in life makes sense because that's what life is like when you go under extreme suffering and extreme grief nothing about life makes any sense have you ever felt like that now pause there on job we'll get back to job in a second But before I allow us to wallow in the gloom (laughs) of what the reality of suffering is like, I I think it's helpful to remind ourselves of something Jesus taught his disciples when he said this. Remember in Matthew chapter 5, he said this, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be, what? Comforted. At first glance, this seems ludicrous, so unnormal, so irrational, when Jesus says the way to be blessed is to mourn. (laughs) You want to be blessed? You got to be sad. You got to grieve. And so you can look at this and and, and say to yourself, you know, wait, 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 wait. So in order to be happy, you need to be sad. Is, is this, is this what Jesus is trying to say? I I don't, I don't know. Does Jesus know what he's saying? I, I don't know. And while there are obvious applications of what Jesus is talking about regarding mourning and, and the, you know, being blessed, for mourning at the micro level. We're not going to really go into that. We've talked about this a lot when we've looked at Jesus' Sermon in the Mount. One of the main points that Jesus makes at the macro level, like at the thousand foot level, in this overall talk about blessed are those or happy are those, one of the points that Jesus is making is that this, God does not expect us to always be happy. Otherwise, it wouldn't say, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who, when you are persecuted, right? Like that doesn't sound like, like Jesus is almost saying like, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. In fact, Jesus wants you to be blessed and it almost seems like it has to happen. And over the years, I've seen people disconnect from church or their faith because they believe the myth that once you become a Christian, you should always be smiling and happy-faced and talking about peace and love, all while hanging with your happy Christian friends in the magic clubhouse we call church gatherings, right? But that's not that's not Christianity. That's Mickey Mouse Clubhouse, right? Like, that's, 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 that's make-believe. Because when you become a Christian, it doesn't mean that you become like Pumbaa and Timon, while we're on the whole Disney thing, right? Who say what? Akuna Matata. Or that you take on a Bob Marley approach to life where imaginary birds come singing to your doorstep and landing on your shoulder saying, don't worry. What? Bow to ting. 
Because here's the thing. Every little thing isn't going to be all right. It's great for a song. But it's actually not the truth of life. Because in life, there are ups and there are downs. Right? There are ups. There are downs. And by the way, this is not a a Christian or non-Christian thing. Like, the fact that life has ups and downs is not tied to a religious thing. This is the fact of life. Now I got that song, Facts of Life, stuck in my head. I'm not going to sing it. Some of you young people don't know that song. It's the facts of life. The facts of life. Right? Anyways. I sang it anyways, didn't I? (laughs) But this is true of everyone who's ever lived on earth. You experience what? Highs? Experience lows. In fact, Ecclesiastes tells us this. There's occasion for everything. A time for every activity in heaven. And then he goes on to say a time to weep. Time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance, right? In fact, Jesus himself said it best when he said this to his disciples in John 16, Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows. But take heart, because I have overcome the world. Last week, we talked about um, how to help people in our spheres of influence who have left the church or faith because of church hurt. If you weren't there, uh, you can listen to the podcast. But if you remember, I, I said, admittingly, that the way that we can help people re-engage the idea of life in faith, life in community with the church... There's a lot of different things we can do, but at some point, the starting point in helping people who have disconnected from God in the church is to bring them back to what? The person of Jesus. I know that sounds like such a Christian answer, but it's, it's the truth. And I don't know, the older I get as a pastor, preacher, or whatever you want to call me, I think I think I'm I'm becoming the guy who has one sermon. And I'm not even apologizing about it anymore. I'm getting too old. Because the solution to helping people who have been hurt by the church, helping them re-engage in that journey of reconciling with all of that. Not only does that start with Jesus, the solution for helping our friends who disconnect from church or faith because of suffering is Jesus. Now, that's a very easy answer to say. Like, what do you mean by that, Phil? Well, Jesus is the answer because according to Jesus, God's ultimate answer to suffering isn't an explanation. Okay? God's ultimate answer to suffering isn't an explanation. This is why you're suffering. This is the reasons why. God answers suffering through the incarnation. It's not an explanation. It's the incarnation. Like, what do you mean by that? Suffering is a personal problem that dissolves a personal response. 
This is what John was trying to communicate in his gospel when he wrote. This is what we, whenever we read this passage of scripture, we've read this a lot. In John chapter 1, this is what the theological foundation of everything that's being talked about here, about in the beginning, this is what it was talking about. Especially in John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. There was suffering in the world. We were suffering because of sin and the effects of sin. And the only way to, to effectually rid our lives of this kind of suffering that we were personally dealing with is to do something very personal himself. And so God sent his son. Like you have to recognize that from the macro level. Now, now how does that help the other, the micro level stuff? Like the individual suffering that we're facing. Well, this is the reason why the writer of Hebrews wrote this in Hebrews 4. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who passed through heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness. Or I like how one translation says, with confidence. So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in the time of need. If you want to help your friends, you have to ask yourself, do you believe this first? Because you cannot replicate in the lives of those you're trying to help, that which you do not have yourself. Do you believe that you have a great high priest who not only sees what's going on in your life, every part of it, the good, but also the very ugly? Do you believe that he not only cares but that because he was sent to earth and lived the life we lived and died the kind of life you and I actually deserve to die, but will never die because of Jesus, do you believe he understands your pain? That he knows? And so when he acts as the interceder between you and God and goes before God and says, God, help my brother or sister in Christ, Tom, he's going through suffering and I know what that's like. And as he prays for you, do you believe that he understands you? Do you believe that? I think I was forthcoming when we started this series that um, the title of the series to my friend who left the faith comes from a book that I read almost a year ago called To My Friend Who Left the Faith. And the book this series is named after, the author writes this. It's actually, a, the book is, is a little bit of a book, but it's, almost, it's, almost, it's actually written like a letter to this friend who left the faith. And, and here's what he writes to his friend who had left the faith. He says this, Some Christians have sought to defend Christianity from the problem of suffering by teaching that suffering does not exist for the faithful. I'm here to defend Christianity by teaching that suffering existed for the most faithful of them all. I don't know why my dad died so young or why brokenness cuts through the lives of so many or why 
My wife Priscilla recently had a miscarriage. But the God of the universe doesn't just ask me to suck it up. (laughs) He came down to suck it up with me. Now, that's, that's not language you probably use from the pulpit, but that is something you say in honesty to a friend that you are trying to point back to Jesus. And this is why the gospel is so powerful. Because this is what God did. When Jesus was suffering and dying, and it appeared as though God couldn't be any less in control, right? The God of the universe is allowing his son to die. (laughs) What kind of God is that? Well, we know the end of the story. We know that he was totally in control. In the moment, it appeared God was, the wheels have flown off the bus. Sorry, uh, Jill. Uh, I don't want to talk about wheels flying off the bus. Falling off the car. <laughs> the wheels have totally fallen off of this thing that's moving. But it really wasn't. God was in control. Jesus' death and resurrection actually bought and brought total restoration. And this is why we pray. This is why we hope. This is why we reach out in love to our community. This is why we gather. This is why we learn, why we grow. This is why we live out the grace and love of God because one day God will renew and restore all things and all things will be as they should be. This is why we choose to repent of our sin and turn from living a life our way instead of choosing and and instead choose to submit to live life God's way according to his will. This is why we do this. Now, I remember I did say uh, Job. Remember I said, remember Job? Remember Job we met at the beginning? Uh, After Job gives his complaint to the Lord, the Lord answers him in a very unique way. If if you've read the story, you, you know Job spends all these chapters, you know, oh God, he did this and this, this and this. And then all of a sudden God replies to him. And he does it in two different ways. First, he, he kind of proves to Job that he's infinitely familiar with everything that exists in the world. And that he knows infinitely more than Job can comprehend. In other words, whatever reasons God has allowed for Job's suffering, neglect wasn't one of them. Whatever reason that Job suffered neglect, it didn't just pass by God. Like, oops, sorry about that, bro. I didn't mean for you to suffer there. One Hebrew Bible scholar uh, by the name of John Walton, he puts it this way, and this is kind of a paraphrase in his commentary of Job. He says, God's answer to Job does not explain why righteous people suffer because the cosmos is not designed to prevent righteous people from suffering. Job questioned God's design and God responded that Job had insufficient knowledge to do so. Job questioned God's justice and God responded that Job needs to trust him. And that he should not arrogantly think that God could be domesticated to conform to Job's feeble perceptions of how the cosmos should run. God asks for trust, not understanding, and states 
the cosmos is founded on his wisdom, not Job's justice. And then in Job 42, we, um, we witness that a full understanding of who God is, not a full understanding of why Job was suffering, we find that it was enough for Job to find the peace he was looking for. It's like we get through all of this, and then Job's found, okay, all right, makes sense. And, and what's interesting is that God never gives Job a reason. Job never re- he never understands what's going behind the scenes. God never tells him about this little deal with Satan or Satan, however you want to say it, right, that he had made. He never tells Job this. Job never knows why he went through all this suffering. God just fully revealed himself to Job, and Job was like, whoa, okay, I get it. You are sovereign. You did create everything, and I I have no idea what has gone up. And you know what? But you still chose me. That's enough for me. That's enough for me. And may I suggest that the only the only way that we're going to demonstrate and communicate the reality of God, His gospel, and His mission in this world with those in our spheres of influence who have left the church or faith, the only way we're going to do that is if we first believe in this reality that God truly is enough. That his ways are higher than ours. And then if we begin to, and it's not even just a blind faith. It's actually looking at his word and understanding that God is creator from the beginning of Genesis. And seeing his promises come through. And then coming face to face with the person of Jesus. Who can not only be proven by the realities of historical writings and artifacts. But in fact lives in you and moves in our lives now. Like even if we didn't have the empirical evidence, we can point to the reality how Jesus changes lives. Jesus changed my life. Didn't he change yours? And we could point to those things. And until we have a full encounter with Jesus, then and only then can we help those who have left the church or faith start the journey of deeply connecting with God and the family that he has been building, which is what? His church. But I do want to remind us of something Paul said to the Christians in a city called Corinth. But before I tell you that, like, I'm going to oversimplify this. So he's saying, Phil, like, all you have to do is help them to know Jesus. Absolutely. What about apologetics and all this? Like, that's, that can be helpful for some people. But listen, Jesus is enough. Well, that's like, so what do I do? Just like tell them Jesus loves them? That might be a good start. But like if you can't feel like you, you know enough to talk about Jesus and how he is working in the world and working in your life, then, then there is a practice that needs to be happening in your own life. Maybe you need to know Jesus more. Maybe you need to start memorizing the things that Jesus said so that you go from like, oh, I think I know. There's this, uh, somewhere, I think, you know, Jesus said something about like our enemies and I think maybe you should know. Maybe you should know Jesus more because the duty of help, because otherwise if we convince our friends to go back to church without the foundation of Jesus and we use rationale, here's the thing. They're going to need that to stay in the church. They're going to need that to keep the faith. 
And if Jesus isn't enough, then he isn't enough. So we need them to know Jesus. Now, with that said, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians, Blessed be the God of our Father, Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. He comforts us in all of our affliction so that we may have may be able to comfort those who are any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. In other words, when engaging those in our spheres of influence who have left the church or faith, we must not forget that our affliction, that in our affliction, God offered us comfort. But not just so we could be comfort. So we could comfort others as well. And so to me, this practically means that as followers of Jesus who have been recipients of God's comfort at our points of need... We must be the kind of people who give comfort to people at their point of need. We need to be patient. We need not to get angry. We need not to get frustrated. We need to be patient, just as God is patient. But then also, we need to tell the story. Tell the story of how God has met you in your time of need. Offer comfort by telling the story of how God has offered you comfort so that others can turn to God in their time of need.